Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. It's Karen Lynch hosting yet another episode of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to be hosting again. As you know, uh, the, the occasions where I get to do this are few and far between, but it's always a pleasure to join you. And it's a pleasure for me to talk to today's guest. Sarah Devonzo is somebody that I've known for a few years now. I actually had secured her to write an article for the QRCA Views magazine back in 2021. So she's been on my radar as an expert in insight science for a few years now. Sarah is ahead of the curve when it comes to the future of data and analytics and insight and cultural strategy. She has worked in 22 countries for Fortune 500 companies and consultancies and agencies and startups. She leads today the data office at Pierre Fabre, one of the world's most interesting sustainable companies in the pharma space. Sarah also spoke at IIEX Health recently in the fall, and her topic there was insight science as well, the future of insights in three chapters. Today, we're going to go over those three chapters, but first, I'd love to welcome you, Sarah, to the show. Karen, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure every time I see you and and collaborate with you on some project. It's always, it turns into magic. So thanks. It's a pleasure. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. And I, I feel the same, very much a, a mutual mutual admiration for one another. <laughs> Sarah, what did I leave out of, the, of that introduction? What can you tell our readers a little bit about your, your background by way of introduction? Well, thanks. Um, I think, you know, as you rightly pointed out, my current role is um, running the data activation office, which really is a culmination of a career in branding and marketing and insights. You know, if you think of kind of the, a pyramid of, of, you know, at the bottom of the base of the, the pyramid, maybe it's a Maslow's type hierarchy of intelligence or knowledge, but the very bottom of it is, you know, the data the facts. And then you move up the the pyramid to, you know, kind of information and then ideally intelligence. And then hopefully then there's insight. And I think that the mother load at the top of the pyramid, you know, at the very top of pinnacle would be foresight to be able to predict. And I think what you've encompassed is in my area, it's not very common, but in my, my department of the data activation office, we have four buckets of of intelligence and I you know up that pyramid first is business intelligence so your sell in sell out your the intelligence that the business you know organizes then there's market intelligence the competitive landscape the competition the categories the channel environment right the marketplace and there's human intelligence which we would sometimes say patients or physicians or consumers or shoppers, right? And then following that, the fourth area is cultural intelligence, and that's the context. So it's BI, business intelligence, MI, market intelligence, HI, human intelligence, and CI, cultural intelligence. And you know, I think what's important to understand is this is a kind of a confluence of all of these four areas, which are typically siloed. 
usually held by different offices or functions in an organization. And what we're doing is we're bringing it together to really create kind of a brain or a real knowledge center and competitive advantage through intelligence. So I think that's what I wanted to share to understand the context of the purview of kind of the, or my remit in the area of insights and foresight. It kind of spans the BI, MI, HI, and CI space. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. It's great great to have that level of understanding about how you're organized. And it, it begs the question for me is, how did you get there to that place where you can sit on top of all of that and and weave all those threads together for your organization? Tell me some of the, the formative points in your career that brought you to today. Well, well, thanks. So I guess I guess it's it really is um, having dabbled in all of those all those areas throughout my my career. I'd say probably the most hacked area that I didn't have formal training is the BI. So I I sit with other BI holders or chief data officers, you know, as a member of the you know International Society of Chief Data Officers, who tend to come from you know computer science, IT, and more of an infrastructure and software side of things as opposed to an intelligence side of things. So that's the area where I'm greenest (laughs) and the area where maybe my perspectives are a little less traditional. But I did have experience running companies and being part of startup world where, you know, the BI, the business intelligence, you're managing it, you know, if you're CEO of a company or, you know, startup or a venture, you're looking at that intelligence all the time. So as a super user of that space, that was what qualified me for the BI. Then in other parts of my marketing career, you know, which you rightly pointed out, spanned you know many many years in countries and continents. There were times that I was involved with consumer insights, shopper insights, patient patient insights. There were other times that I led cultural strategy, cultural intelligence. I ran a cultural intelligence agency for Omnicom called Sparks and Honey, and then and then market intelligence. Uh, many jobs, you know, uh, many roles that I've had. You know, whether it's strat planning for ad agencies, those roles, I had to look at the market and the competition or, you know, again, back, you know, client side running the teams that were responsible for it. So I think what is very pleasing to me, I'm very fortunate that PFOB, you know, had the foresight to understand that this was all could be in one function. And, you know, thankfully it it tapped into my, my background. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. I'm an old dog. I've been on the block. No, a really long you know, time, so I don't want to belie my, you know, share my age, but yeah, I kind of been in all those places. The, the, the way you speak, it sounds like you've had a century long career. You've done so much and, you know, you are, you are not that seasoned. So I just love everything that you've accomplished. And it, it sets the context for, for this conversation, which brings us to Insight Science. And taking a step back to this article that you had penned, you had written it in such a a future forward creative way where you you were acting as if you were in the year 2030 and accepting an award for Insight Science. So give our audience a little bit of a feel for what you mean by Insight Science now that we have the context of your background and what you do. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I, I, before I go there, I just want to say, I, I again back to the, the what I said at the beginning. Thank you for for working with me and partnering with me to give the latitude of creativity. And we'll talk more about magic and creativity in just a second, because I know that's which, where where we will go, because that was part of my the speech recently. You know, um, but the point is, is that the article was first of all using strategic foresight 
as part of a conversation around insight. And I think maybe that's also maybe an important point to make. Somewhere along my career, I don't know, maybe about 15 years ago, it became really apparent to me in the insights and marketing space that having understanding of the past and the present isn't really helpful entirely, especially if you're in innovation. And if you're wanting to be ahead of the competition, you know, understanding the market, which is just the, what the, you know, the competition's doing, you know, uh, looking at your Nielsen's and your MPDs and your Kleins and your, you know, various forms of Euro monitors of market data, you know, is, is cool, but really don't we want to know what's going to happen next so that we can get ahead of the game and be, you know, outcompete our competition. So that got me really interested in the world of strategic foresight. And that, by the way, led me to cultural intelligence because, Cultural intelligence is the start of foresight thinking. So everything starts with the zeitgeist, the culture, the societal, technological, environmental, economic. I could go on, you know, these kinds of constructs or or areas of, of intelligence. What are the trends, you know? And what we end up starting to do is looking at what's a micro trend that I can activate on immediately and maybe my my internal client is using it for social media or marketing decisions or sales pitch or conversation with a physician, right? Macro trends might be something that I want to track over the next year to 18 months. And that will also inform my marketing strategies, but it might be a campaign design or it might be, you know, integrated marketing. And then the mega trends, you know, will probably be the, what will drive my innovation a new product development. And so I would look in, as I said, societal, technological, environmental, economic, various different kinds of trends in the space in those different altitudes of micro, macro, macro. And that will give me the understanding of the future, the prediction, not just the insight, but the foresight. Now, strategic foresight tends to leverage a lot of the macro omega, like it's longer range. And so that article was looking at the trends, the technology, the data, all of the signals that were showing, that were telling us what the world is going to probably be like in 2030. And then interpreting that in what we call in the foresight world, design fiction. It's a mechanism, you know, for bringing the future into play through art projects or artifacts that are fake, you know, or, or writings to basically show the future of our industry and what we did, tried to do there in that article is also show the technologies really that are going to be the most catalytic to our field of insights and foresight. So this is one of those moments where I'm sitting here thinking, if I wasn't recording this with you, I would be fast and furiously writing notes because there's so much that you just said that feels like gold that I want to follow up on. Talk to me a little bit more about design fiction. It's actually mm. the first time I've heard that phrase. So okay. I am... So it's, great yeah. it's a great tool for insights professionals and, you know, who are wanting to think about the future, i.e. be a foresight professional. And so design fiction is you design something, you can write something or create something that's fictional, but it tends to be sci-fi, meaning there's a science or technology behind it. Okay. And so sometimes it's also called speculative futures. And so it's a genre. It's often in kind of the arts world, the humanities world, which I think is exactly a wonderful point that you're highlighting on. And why you found it interesting to work on that project was we were bringing in an, kind of your right brain, creative, arty kind of approach to very serious 
insights topics about methodologies and technologies and approaches that we would use in our world of insights. And we're doing it with a kind of a future future lens. And you know me well enough to know that that's kind of a, a little soapbox, which is always be thinking, <laughs> always be always be thinking about the future and how we can use technology platform, software, devices to improve the work that we do, to scale our work, to amplify our work, to communicate our work, to also help with diversification and inclusion. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for bringing that to mind. Actually, it's reminding me of uh, another speaker that I'm talking with that we hope to have on the podcast soon, who was working in cultural intelligence, driving some inclusion efforts in their organization and hopefully projected out to the world. So thank you for that little nugget as well. You know, obviously, you know me well enough to know like creativity and that kind of inspired thinking is a part of my my persona and what I embrace and what I value. And at Green Book, obviously, we're all about the future of insight. So I think that's right. one of the reasons I was so happy to bring you to the IIEX stage for mm-hmm. IIEX Health was to talk about the future of insights to an audience that's very much, you know, kind of healthcare, medical, pharma, and not necessarily out-of-the-box thinkers that way. So that was part of the pleasure of having you on that stage and some of the fresh thinking you brought to that audience. So Talk to me just a little bit about your experience in that space and how you're bringing this thinking that when you were at L'Oreal, it might have felt like, yeah, it's the beauty industry. That's what we do. And here you are in a different field. And yet you can still bring that magic. Yeah, thank you. So a couple things. One is I, I've been in pharma at multiple points in my career. So it seems to be a space where I keep getting drawn back to because I like life sciences. I like life. <laughs> I like humans. I like the idea of wellness and health. And it, to me, that seems you know pretty important. And so there are remarkable differences and unique qualities to this field, especially where it relates to insights. Obviously, we have data privacy issues. We have respectful issues, ethical issues around that, you know, issues of topics that people don't want to talk about. Sometimes it's harder to get the insight or intelligence because it's just something that's a taboo subject. There's, you know, that that divide between the expert and the citizen, whatever doctor, you know, we're going through lots of changes in this field. I found IIEX really cool. And thank you for that. Because when in the lobby, there were all these fantastic technology companies that are now or are in insight space. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So one of the companies, and I'm not going to pitch a, a, a name of a company specifically, but one over COVID invented a way to use little 360 cameras. They send out to patients, consumers, doctors, derms, whatever. And basically with the instructions, the organization sets it, you know, you can self-set it up. And the next thing you know, the viewer okay, the us, the, 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 the insights professional or the client can look into, literally be 360 immersed into the environment. It could be at someone's home, like an ethnography. It could be a doctor's office. It could be a hospital room. But using the technology in such a creative way, normally this technology would be for like bungee jumping and go, you know, like a GoPro type of thing, you know, but to do it in such a, an interesting way, that was that's one great example. Another example is deep social listening and and uh, natural language processing. There were several platforms that took it to the next level, you know, that that really were quite cutting edge with their machine learning and the ability to leverage some of those technologies that, you know, really I think is very fresh in the insights world to infer 
maybe what patients aren't saying and what they're maybe meaning but not saying to help really understand the context of, of a conversation. So that was just two examples of technology. So I enjoyed that, you know, IIEX Health had that element to it. The audience are practitioners, both from agencies, consultancies, or they were from clients like us, like I'm a manufacturer of pharmaceutical and dermocosmetics. And so you have two kind of people sitting on the fence. Both are very interested in methodology. Both are incredibly focused on efficiency and productivity because that's the world we're in. I mean, we're, you know, obviously trying to rub two pennies together to get, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot, a lot of value. So I think there was a great focus on how can some of these techniques help get to game-changing, unobvious insights in faster, quicker, smarter, right? And technology. So there, we, we shared that. I guess there's often in that conversation that's so transactional and business-focused. I have dealt with this throughout my career. There's often a, less of an appetite to think about things that might be perceived as quote-unquote fluffy and creative as creative tools to get to insight, you know, give me the facts, give me the intelligence. But oftentimes we overlook that sometimes we need to have some creative processes, inspirational processes, non-traditional processes to get to the insight, to unlock something that your competitor didn't have. And I'll give you a very concrete example is back to that point of diversity, human diversity and data diversity. You know, different brains, cognitive diversity, we've all heard about it, see facts differently, will interpret the information and the signals differently. You know, the more different ways you can come at a problem from different angles, i.e. different, you know, different types of cognition, right? Different, you know, there's tons of research to show that that's where innovation comes from and insight comes from and new connections are made. And I think many creative, I, I talked about a few of them in my talk at, at IIEX, a creative processes to facilitate that to, with the end game of unlocking insight that others have not seen, which is what we want, right? In the business. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's got the same data. So you got to interpret it differently. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In my, in my previous life as a facilitator, for those of you who don't know who are listening, I, before I joined Green Book, I was a moderator and a facilitator. And I often worked with organizations to facilitate their own ideation processes, what, what's coming next for their innovation pipeline and how can they move into that space. So diversity of thought was always one of my prerequisites for if we're, if we're doing this, let's make sure we get not just your team in the room, but cross-functional teams and individuals from different walks within the company. Hey, let's fold consumers in to kind of co-create that process with you so that you are, you know, bringing in some experts perhaps from whatever niche that you're in. So I'm all in for diversity of thought. So it's bringing us to this next part that I want to cover in this conversation, that that concept. And really for, for again, our listeners, Sarah's talk at IAX Health was brought to us in three parts, three chapters, if you will. And in, the, in this first chapter of your talk, you talked about this research project that also had some lots and lots of layers in there, but it was 155 insights professionals. It was 24 futurists. Tell us a little bit about the framework for that project, because I really want to dig into some of the learnings from it. 
Well, it was really just, you know, being locked up in COVID, right? Thinking, okay, wouldn't it be great if the world was more insightful and we had a better handle on how to get insight, right? So I, you know, I was, I, I, I thought, okay, well, let's, let's talk, let's, let's see what we can do. I could, you know, as a, you know, foresight practitioner, I thought, what if we also showed how these two communities, insights professionals and foresight professionals, you know, can work and should work maybe together so they're not two separate silos as they tend to currently be. It's almost as of like, they're often incorporations, different departments, different functions, the types of, you know, skill and learning that you go through, the methods that are used. It's, you know, the, it's surprising to me that there's not more overlap, you know, in the Venn diagram of insight and foresight. So I surveyed 155 insights professionals from around the world just by reaching out on LinkedIn, you know, and, and then talk to, you know, as I, a quarter of a, you know, a 24 futurists and it was qualitative and quantitative. There was a survey. There was a lot of open-ended questions, uh, a lot of engagement, a lot of retargeting to, to follow up. And then in addition to having kind of this viewpoint of what people think about our industry, what's driving insights, the technologies, how will the, the industry be defined most and changed most between now and the year 2030, what we also looked at is also what were their ticks and tricks you know, were there any tips to to share? And I published a white paper and the white paper is on a website called insightscience.com, I believe. And um, it's, you can download it for free. And it's pretty heavy because it's about 70 pages of, of intelligence from this research. But then we engaged an artificial intelligence platform to also analyze the mood and emotions and like read between the lines because, you know, gam- looking at technology and trying to lead by example, by showing how it can be used, you know, used a, a platform, to, you know, it was donated. It was just free. I said, Hey, I'm doing this project, you know, and got, you know, uh, this partnership to understand that there were actually some st- sticky points. So let me give you an example is that the insights professionals really don't align on definitions of even the word insight <laughs> or consumer insight or shopper insight or need or attention. There are some basic fundamentals of our industry that are, are not really kind of, you know, standard, like unlike the medical industry where you would go into the DSM or you would go into, you know, a, a medical a book of for teaching, you know, teaching school and you you understand certain terms. So that was a big insight was, you know, that we're that we need maybe some more alignment on what is our industry. And the number one answer to what do we do for a living as insights professionals. But again, these are like strategic planners, insight leads at corporations, consultants, uh, market researchers. But the number one definition was that they connect the dots. Connect the dots was is the only term that was across the board. And I find that to be very vague because in some ways, so let's go back to foresight. I don't think it's about connecting dots. I think it's about gestalt, which is seeing dots that are not there. <laughs> Right? It's not just looking at patterns of dot connecting. It's looking at the missing white space between the dots and projecting where the dots are going to be next year and all that stuff. So I think it's more complex than that. And so I think that was telling as a research result that we have underestimate or or downplay really the the, the work that we do. Another thing that was quite fascinating from this piece of research was that in fact, there, there was alignment that people could be taught the skills of being insightful. So, you know, if we're talking about the insights community, and this was a, a survey on the future of insights, and what do you think? I was like, okay, well, well, isn't insightfulness, whatever that is, 
pretty important. So there was this real belief that, yes, we can educate and train people and improve competencies to improve insightfulness. And the most important skill of a person who is insightful, according to the community of futurists and insights professionals, is curiosity. You're curious, naturally curious, inquisitive, exploratory, discovering types of personalities tend to be insightful, find the answers, find the knowledge, you know, the intelligence, the insight. And so there's a direct correlation there. So what I loved about it was there was a belief that this is plastic and this can be exercised and we have the power to work on this, these skills of being more curious and being more insightful. And that that kind of opened up a possibility of should we attack this as a challenge, you know, uh, trying to improve our, you know, uh, is that part of our, our remit? Is that a KPI? How much did, you know, as a insights professional, is it part of your KPI, you know, for the year? How, how much did you, if you will, create the contagious curiosity within your organization? Can you measure how much more inquisitive and exploratory your organization is? Is that part of the role? I think it's part of the role. I think it's part of the role too, for sure. And I'm, I'm drawing such a correlation in my brain to the world of creative problem solving that I've lived in, where we have learned and are taught how to apply your imagination, deliberate creativity, how it's a skill that can be, it is dormant in all of us and it can be brought to the surface with the right tools and, and training and, and skills and practice. Creativity is a muscle that we need to exercise in our work worlds to solve problems, but also, yes, to go to this place where we can understand what an insight is. What I thought was really interesting in some of the data that you shared about this space of insightful people and, and curiosity is that people didn't necessarily think of themselves as insightful. People in our field didn't really think of themselves as insightful. So they, this is a gap in their, either in their confidence or in their training. Let me qualify that. I think that they did, there was in some ways, there's a little hubris about their insightfulness and curiosity, but it wasn't, there was also a humility. As I think that, let me, let me uh, clarify your point. When the research became really clear that there was, and 51% said they wanted coaching to improve their insightfulness and would be open to a curiosity training, even, you know, if there were, if there were skills and tools. And so, and as you know, I work on that on the side, my side projects are all about how to uh, cultivate curiosity and, you know, people, communities, enterprises, and so forth. And so, and I, and I do know that it can be, it can be measured and it, and it can be cultivated. So I thought, that that was fascinating that there's certainly room to grow. So that shows both, that shows humility. And that's the first step to being a more curious person is being humble, right? Another really interesting thing that you shared, a, d- a data point that you shared just about the tension around insight and insight definition. You talked a little bit about the emotions associated with that for people. And what stood out to me is that there's a connection to anger. And I'd love for you to explain that because I think that that will resonate with our with our listeners who feel some feels when it comes to defining an insight. Okay. So what we found with the AI, okay, as we fed the, what was it? 59,000 words from the qual of the research from the futurists and the insights professionals. Again, it's all available on a white paper on insightscience.com. If the listeners are interested, they can read it. But the point is that from the, the AI, specifically was motion recognition AI, and from the syntax of the language, we were able to ascertain that there was a very high degree of anger and fear 
when the insights professionals were asked about, can you define an insight? Like, wow, right? You know, and that goes back to the point I was making is because there isn't a universal definition of, you know, in our field that there's still a lot of ambiguity around some of the certainly processes, the glossary of terms and so forth in our field, because it could be market research, it could be insights professionals, it could be strategic planners. There's like all these kind of nuances of the industry and more. I think that is what caused the fear. I don't know. I'm inferring that. I think that might be driving that there was an uncomfortable reaction because people were being put on the spot. And we had lots of people say, wow, I've actually never had to define some of these definitions before, or I can't remember the last time I was asked to find the difference between a need state and a consumer tension. You know, like, you know what I mean? So it just shows an opportunity, right? An opportunity for our industry to, at least within enterprises. And so what I did is I used this information to definitely embark on education within my teams to make sure that we were at least all marching to the same drummer and aligning on definitions with our vendors so that, you know, our same, our research partners are also, there's some alignment and also to use that to communicate that when we mean an insight in this context, we have, you know, maybe we have an obvious insight, but we have also unobvious. And you might say, well, why be like that? Well, because some insights can be a little bit more, you know, <laughs> you know, validation on the others. We're looking for something that's going to be game changing and something that's really going to be connective. So I think it just opens the conversation of what, what is it that we're looking for <laughs> at the end of the day? Yeah. And it's good to level set on that. I, I know that one of my previous employers had a very solid working definition of an insight. And when I had heard it, and, and I'll share it with everybody, it was an insight is really an unexpected human truth that you can act upon. And what I did with that was I took it in and I, I felt comfort in having something solid when I was writing reports or when I was trying to you know, look at findings and, and see what could jump out at me as an insight, because my personal pet peeve in research was always, that's a finding, not an insight. Let's be clear. Like there's something else going on with the insight. So anyway, so I settled on this definition in my soul, really for my practice to be able to say, this is how we're defining it in our organization. And it was absolutely a guiding principle. Right. And I think the operative word in that definition, which is really interesting, is unexpected because, you know, there's going to be a level of a spectrum of expectedness. You know, how, ma- how many of the times, like, come on, how, how many pieces of research have you read? And you're like, yep, 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 yep. There's nothing that makes you real, like, or not a lot that makes you go like, wow, that's a connection I haven't made. Or that's an inference. You're, you're triangulating information that is, you know, really fresh. You know, because insight, when you break it down, it's inside seeing, right? Seeing inner, you know, it's it's not the obvious, right? It's seeing inside something. And so, you know, we're, we're as business people, we're looking, constantly looking for seeing inside things and finding stuff, insights, that our competitors don't have so that we can, as you rightly say, act on it and gain competitive advantage. So, you know, when we're doing research, so often there will be quote unquote insights that come out of it that I've seen. And then it's like, do you think that the competition doesn't have that? <laughs> really? They haven't surfaced that in their own ethnography. So, you know, maybe we need to do a little bit more or correlate the data with some other data, data diversity, to try to get something new in a new kind of, you know, amalgam 
<laughs> or electrum of intelligence. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So Sarah, let's move in to kind of the second chapter of your talk, which talk about looking inside of something, right? You went into a, a metaphorical chapter where you, it was so beautiful also for, for those of you who weren't there, it's just a beautiful portion of the program where you went into the language of butterflies and there was a lot of great imagery around the magic of butterflies and even that, that metamorphosis on some level of, of, the world of butterflies. So talk to us a little bit about that metaphor. I think a lot of us in our, in this industry would know that the power of metaphor, metaphor and frameworks are just exponentially unlocking, right? Because all of a sudden it, it pushes one's thinking. If you take that metaphor really hard, you start to then have to push your own thinking about how you're applying it, right? And you think of things in a new, new light. So I, I use it in my teaching. I use it in my coaching and I've used it in my business all the time, right? And so what struck me was the fact is that through the inside science work, right? That whole piece of that white paper work and that research, really what it was kind of showing was, okay, well, let's break down insights. Let's be a little bit more pedantic about this field, Let's approach it scientifically, which is, you know, we need glossaries. We're showing that we need methods. We show you that we need potentially more alignment on processes and sharing. And maybe there's even certification or there's some kind of, you know, so the science of insights part of it, the sciencey part came from the white paper project. Okay. So then I thought, okay, well, let's look at some other fields of science. And I always like to turn to natural sciences, life sciences, you know, for biomimicry, right? Everything in the world that we do artificially can we find in nature, right? So I was thinking, what other fields could we potentially learn from or use as a corollary to the work that we do as insights and foresight professionals? And so I started to go through, you know, and I don't know, I just, I, something, I, I must have noticed that there was this correlation. If I'm going to say it, Correctly, it's Lapidurpidopolology. I think it is Lapidurpidologist. I think <laughs> the name of a is a butterfly scientist, and, and this was because butterfly scientists are like the butterfly effect. That's always kind of cool. That's you know connects to the foresight. Is you know it's like a little thing, a little the butterfly you know bats its wings, and the theory is that all the connectivity of everything, which is really what strategic foresight's about. You're looking at the ecosystem of the insights in the world, and you're looking at you know what's going to connect and what's likely to happen as a result of you know all of the you know the confluence of all these events. And so the butterfly made sense. We chase butterflies. We chase insights right? We are deeply examining butterflies, you know, uh, dissecting butterflies, unfortunately, you know, putting them into boxes and labeling them just like we have our consumer insights and our shopper insights and our whatever the hell kind of insights, you know, we're always looking at, you know, talking about what do we make <laughs> with the insight, the transformation, just like there's lots of art projects with butterflies these days and, you know, artworks with butterflies. And, you know, ideally, you know, we're looking at the ecosystem of around a butterfly or insight, right? And, you know, take it to the next stage is why chase butterflies? Why can't we create the conditions for a butterfly, for attracting butterflies? What if I wanted butterflies, all the butterflies to come here on my balcony? What could I put out? What could I do to make the conditions for the butterflies? And, you know, that would be a lot easier to attract butterflies than for me to go chasing, just like in the world of insights. I don't have a thousand people to just send out to look for all kinds of nuanced insights. We need to figure out ways for the insights to find us. 
to attract them through technologies, platforms, networks of people, all sorts of ways to have the insights find us or the data find us or the intelligence come to us. And so in that sense, the butterfly analogy or rather metaphor really worked and uh, continues to work. I, I've done lots of training sessions with newbies to the insights and foresight profession using the butterfly as an example, and just to kind of explain some processes for how to approach the industry. I mean, we have minis- like minuscule little butterflies. There's butterflies that literally are that, you know, the head of a pin. They're tiny, tiny little butterflies. And there's giant butterflies of big sizes, bigger than my head or bigger than even like a St. Bernard's head. Little insights and big insights, you know, uh, and they can be found in lots of different places and, you know, they're you know, all different characteristics and whatever you get. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And I, again, this is why I was intrigued by it. I love, I love picturing, you know, but, you know, butterflies just swarming all around and how many there can be. Like, that's one of my favorite kind of just pictures. And of course, I'm somebody who planted a butterfly bush just to bring them to oh, me. Cool. So I totally get that analogy. Yeah. Yeah. The butterfly bush is near my hummingbird feeder. So we can talk about the hummingbird analogy another time as well. So let's move into chapter chapter three of your talk, right? For the sake of time, because I, I want to be mindful of yours and our listeners. But What you moved into after that beautiful, beautiful segue was something even more magical, if you can believe it, which was insight alchemy. Like even even Susan Griffin had had joked because this is really what was catalytic for your your book. So while her joke was while some people were, you know, home during the pandemic learning how to make sourdough bread, you know, you were out there, you know, writing a book on insight alchemy and as sort of like a, a keepsake, one part keepsake, one part reference, one site part teaching aid. So Talk to us a little bit about that and then the the gold as a part of it. Okay, thanks. Okay, so back, first of all, backing up, the IIEX Health talk had three parts. The first part was, oh, the first chapter was all about action, acting, right? Behavior. The second was about awe, which was the butterfly. Okay, and the third was about art. And I, and I say that alliteratively, you know, my presentation was act, awe, and art in the three chapters in the how that, that you know, is an examples for our world profession. So let's talk about the art. We started, you and I just started this, this podcast talking about the importance of magic and the importance of art and cognitive diversity and cr- strategic imagination, if you want to even be <laughs> more, you know, in the work that we do and, you know, making sure that we're not so heady. We tend to be, right? The self-selection process of our industry, we tend to be very, you know, analytical, you know, curious, but analytical. But what what insights and what more could be unlocked if we also tapped into the other parts of our brain? You know, as we all know that there's no left and right brain, but I'm just, you know, it's kind of, uh, you get where I'm going. So from the white paper, again, this opportunity for curiosity, the opportunity uh, for, for rather to uh, cultivate curiosity and our neuroplasticity to discover and explore, the opportunity to continue with metaphors. Okay, so I spent a lot, a, lot, a good chunk of my career in this field, but in the gold industry of South Africa. I was a lead strategist hired by the government of South Africa to help uh, restructure the gold industry after apartheid. And so I conducted multiple pieces of research, 18 countries, global research personally, you know, quant, qual, all over on all different facets of design, the strategy for the 
industry, essentially, and uh, whether it's employment and education and investment and all that stuff for the country. And so the point being is that the gold industry is gorgeous. Okay. And there were so much about it that made me think it's so similar to what we do in the world of insights, if you just narrow that in marketing. So let me give you an example. So in the insights world, right, we get paid to go find an obvious insight that that is gold, right? That is, that's, that's going to be game changing. That's going to help the company make a decision or gain competitive advantage, right? But just like the gold industry, think about gold. Gold is deep in the earth. It's, you know, thousands of tons of ore are mined to just get a gram of gold. Gold always is a big mess. And then you get it out of the ground and the people who get it out of the ground, who mine the gold ore are not the people that turn it into a Fabergé egg, right? Different skill sets. And the margin or the value that's placed on the object is higher when it's the refinement of the Fabergé egg, it can be thousands of percentages, you know, the, the, for the, over the gold price. Whereas gold ore, it's usually, you know, whatever the stock market price is the, at, the, at the moment, plus 2% or 1%, it's a very low margin. It's a commodity. And that is a metaphor for our industry. The finding the data and just getting the data part, the mining of the data is often a different set of people than the working to craft that egg, which is language. Often it's language and it's painful language to get it to mean something that it's going to be inspirational and useful. And just to to help when I teach teams to explain that, A, there are different skill sets. And, you know, and so there's the mining, there's the refining, and then there's the working or transformation into the object that is the final product. And if you want to make, you know, basically three point, and there's different margins or length of time that you spend on this. So the, the longest amount of time is the craftsmanship time, right? And sometimes in our field, you know, we're always time starved and money starved. We go, ah, get the research now, just quickly bang it out into the, into the, whatever the creative brief. And we don't give ourselves the time and attention for that last part, which is the highest value add part, which is the language craftsmanship. So that's one example. Another example using drawing on the alchemy field is gold and alchemy is predicated, the gold industry and alchemy is predicated on amalgams, okay, on combining gold with other materials. We don't tend to make things for 24 karat gold because it's too soft. We tend to combine the gold with silver, with palladium, with uh, copper, with, I can name, go on and on for so many different materials. And it makes the gold more beautiful. And therefore, the combination of the insights with other sources of data or the one piece of data with other sources of data is just an example, okay, of how we might want to consider layering different forms of, of intelligence and data to really create a gem of a product or an output. Another example is that the gold industry saves even its scraps. So we have vast, and this is all in my art project, which I'll explain in a second. You know, there's lots of dust, gold dust and scraps and all kinds of detritus from the process that is actually so valuable that the industry goes to great time and, and expense to kind of capture and reclaim. And I use the word reclaim. And I use that as a metaphor for, again, the insights world. How often do we go back to the research from two years ago? 
the research from 10 years ago. The research, it's almost, there's shelf life, right? There's shelf life. Oh, we have to have the most recent pieces of data. Well, actually, there's a lot of intelligence that we kind of let go and, and don't revisit. We're always looking for new because we think the world's changing. But going back and remining data sets or remining research that you might have conducted a few years ago to see what new based on today's context it's a great example of value, you know, not just like the gold industry. So anyway, I created an art project, back to the point. It was an art project that there was a designer in Germany that I had been fangirling on for many years because she has a very clear and beautiful way of, of illustration. And I've been looking for a project. And so I reached out to Hannah, cold call, you know, and said, you know, I really have this idea of a, of a project. And so it became a across Atlantic project during COVID with Hannah, myself, and a really rare and unique printing company. It's a printing technique that's a vegetable inks. That's actually a Japanese printing techniques from the 1970s. It's like a, a elevated photocopy machine. It's called, it's called a risograph machine. It's super weird and super hipster. <laughs> anyway, they're like one printer in the like in, in New York is in Brooklyn and it's like super hipster. Okay. So between the printing company and Hannah and myself, we had a creative collaboration on how to bring to life this kind of a read. It's not a cover-to-cover read. It's kind of like a little magazine, but it's basically like an inspiration for the insights community, for someone who's strat planning or insights or market research to think about the work we do differently, to kind of unlock creative thinking about how we go about our work and methods for unlocking insight and doing it with a lot of beautiful, beautiful illustrations and strategic frameworks and the actual essays from the 24 futurists that I we started this conversation with, actual that show what the visions are for the future of insight. So it's a gorgeous little piece. It's handmade. It's hand printed and put together on this machine. We only have 500 in the world and we've already sold 200 of them. So there's only 300 left in the world. And it's a, and that can be found on insightalchemy.io, <laughs> io, not.com. And um, yeah, and, and so we have a periodic table for insight discovery and there's all this gold metaphor, you know, using my my background in the gold industry, but applying it to the, uh, to the insights work that we do. So hopefully, hopefully some people find it fun. Well, I'm sure they will, especially considering, again, going back to the beginning of this conversation, at least half of the insights professionals out there likely feel like they could gain some capabilities to become more insightful. Certainly this way of thinking and some of the the tips from this, you know, kind of gold metaphor to, you know, not discard the dust and to, you know, make time to be a craftsman, et cetera, et cetera. Hopefully that will help them move that into that direction. I do have to share with people who were not at the event. We had this periodic table that, that Sarah just mentioned, we had 50 copies of it, paper copies. And it was already like, no, no, we only need to do 50 because we often at conferences, if there's papers, they are left behind. Not one of these was left behind. Everybody took every last one. Some people were taking photographs of it because they knew there weren't enough. They wanted it. It was the, the hottest commodity, oh, maybe second to the, you know, to the CBD that was being added to the drinks at the <laughs> cocktail hour. But the periodic table was a very close second. Look at the periodic table. <laughs> that, that'll unlock some insight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Sarah, this has been so great. Uh, before we wrap, is there anything 
anything you wish I had asked you that that we hadn't gotten to? This is kind of your 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 final final moment. Just just that the the back to this point of cognitive diversity, data diversity. You know, you know, are we using are our teams that are analyzing the data, collecting the data, communicating the data, really truly representing of the inclusivity? And I mean, you know, not only obviously ethnicity and race and age and gender, but are we do we have people who are physically challenged or have disabilities? Do we have people who are representing different kinds of perspective politically on the spectrum? Do we have rural and urban, you know, uh, market researchers involved? I know it's hard. And by the way, we have a big bias towards developed markets versus developing markets. But if we want to really be smart as a civilization, you know, and certainly as even smaller level as an enterprise or organization, we want to tap the diversity, the cognitive diversity of the diverse kinds of people out there to analyze, collect, and communicate our intelligence to unlock new insights. So that's a different discussion on how to do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing something else. I'm doing another art project right now using nature and natural, the whole world of plants as the as a metaphor for how to go about that. So come see so, me about that another time. <laughs> excellent. That'll be that'll be our follow-up conversation. And it and it does remind me of in your excursion to the world of nature and natural sciences. There is nothing more beautiful than biodiversity. And if you follow anything on social media that has to do with biodiversity, you get just image after image of our vast beauty in our world and what can we learn for it. So I'll hold on to that metaphor as we move forward as well. Sarah, I want to thank you so much for your thank time. You this conversation has been fantastic. I also want to thank our producer, Natalie push on this episode. I, I couldn't do this without her and uh, green books podcast wouldn't be functioning right now without her. So thank you, Natalie, our audio editor, James Carlisle, Jamie, we are so happy for all that you do for us. And of course our listeners without you, we would not even exist. You bring value to us and we hope to bring value to you. So we're welcome to any feedback you have. And on that note, this is the end of this episode. Thank you so much to all of you. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.